0: Well, hello everybody. It's good to see you, whether you're here in the room or you're watching us uh, from your own computer or television. Uh, so glad that you're with us. Uh, have you ever thought about this? This was just uh, on my mind, uh, even before I came out here, how it's so good to worship. What is it that's so good to worship uh, as, a, as a believer, as a Christian? Uh, it's, it, part of it is it just kind of puts you together in a world that seems to try to pull you apart. Right, I mean, just—I mean—and do you ever think about the words you sing? And I'm not—I'm not not dissing on you. I'm just saying, sometimes I sing them without thinking too. Uh, But uh, sometimes, if you just pause and think about the words that you're actually singing, it's something like God—God kind of brings it back together about what really matters, what really counts. And you don't feel quite so scattered as maybe the week has made you. Um, I thought about that last song we just sang where it says, Jesus, there is none, no one like you. There's no one before you. Uh, open up my eyes and wonder. That's kind of what worship does. It causes us to wonder. And in that wondering, it kind of brings us back together, puts us together. You see, I think what we're talking about here is it addresses a basic human condition in a fallen world. The basic human condition is, is we just can't by ourselves and on our own steam seem to put it all together. I mean, we can get excited and concerned about this piece and this piece and this piece of life in this world, and we've got cause after cause after cause after cause in our, in our society, and our world, and even Christians get locked into sort of that process sometimes. But it just becomes so scattered and so cluttered sometimes. Doesn't it seem like that? I mean uh, the reality is is that this week we've had a very interesting week in terms of this whole process of can we hold this thing together i mean we had a, a major case, court case uh, come down that you know it's one of those cases where everybody will remember where they were and how that kind of uh, what happened when the, the verdict came down and some people thought that that would solve some things but in some ways it just ex- exacerbated and highlighted the divisions in our country right but there was one thing that happened this week in Washington, D.C., that was more unifying. Maybe you didn't even hear about this, but there was one bill that was passed in the Senate, and it passed by a vote of 94 to 1. And it was an important bill. I mean, you can argue whether or not it's actually going to fix anything, a bill out of Congress. I mean, you can argue that easily. But the bill was um, to deal with... uh, uh, the problem that is growing over the last few years, and I know this is a problem because i got friends whom this has happened to, uh, it's, it's a problem of hate and anger toward Asian Americans. Uh, the way that it's referred to now, that uh, in, and my friends don't really like to be lumped into this group so much, but it's AAPI. Asian American uh, Pacific Islander, okay? And I know that's happened because I've got good uh, friends who've had people roll down their windows, throw milkshakes at them or yell some slur at them and stuff and, you know, think, well, at least they didn't get hurt. But what if that happened to you? I mean, if it happened to me, I'd feel really put upon. And so, I mean, it's a good thing that we're starting to pay attention to it. So I'm not arguing that at all. But what caught my eye or caught my ear was the statement of the Bill's... um, Uh, sponsor uh, a a woman who herself is a part of that group of ethnic people uh, she said this will be a tremendous encouragement to AAPI community the AAPI community and what struck me about that was you know I kind of glossed over and I thought wait a minute we never used to talk about ourselves as communities we used to talk about ourselves as a united country and that's kind of new right so all I'm saying is is we are living in a world that is sort of schismatic and pulling apart and stick it all in a blender and spin the centrifuge. And it, it, just, it, it, it just shows you that it's impossible for human beings, it seems, to hold it all together and to keep ourselves together. And that's a big deal spiritually, and it's a big deal for our faith. And I'm beginning to think it might be one of the most important things for us to consider, to learn, and ask God to address in our lives as Christians going forward in the society and the world we live in now. And we will live in. Doesn't mean it's going to be a joyless world. Not, not, we'll, we'll get to that. It just means that we need some outside help in keeping it together, including our faith. And if we don't, If we don't acknowledge that, we're not going to really be where we need to be. Let me give you an example uh, of of, uh, an old, old story, but it has a very up-to-date application. And it's a little bit humorous uh, from a Bible nerdy point of view. If you're not, you might not think this is funny. I think it's funny. But... uh, it has to do with an old scholar from the mid-1800s, his name is B.F. Westcott, and he was a world-renowned expert in, in biblical Greek, okay? And, and uh, he's not out of date because you still use his stuff in seminaries today. I mean, he's that good 150 years ago or whatever it was. And uh, B.F. Westcott was at Cambridge University, and he was walking across campus one day, and another graduate came up to him, and this was a very common thing. This was the start of when people would say, you know, uh, are you saved, You know, so forth. So this very brave undergraduate runs up to Dr. Westcott and says, are you saved, Dr. Westcott? And Dr. Westcott pulled back. He says, hmm, it's funny you should ask. Depends on what you mean by saved. Do you mean that I have been saved, that I have been justified for my sin? Or do you mean that I am being saved, that I'm being sanctified to become more like Jesus? Or are you saying that someday that I will be saved when I'll be glorified in eternity in heaven? you have to answer the question before I can answer your question. And I go, See, uh, I don't know, all, all of them. He said, well, I have been saved because I've given my life to Christ, and I am, I am being saved and becoming more like him, and one day I will be in heaven and be glorified with him. So thank you very much. And, and, and the point of all that is, you, even in our language, we don't have language to really understand this whole thing of everything God is or everything he wants to do and everything that he says that we are even, you know, to keep us together. To really know who we really are and to know who he really is, we need some outside help on that. Because the tendency, because we live in this fallen condition, is to think that it's sort of like a one-and-done deal. I've prayed the prayer. I fixed this thing. I fixed that thing. Or we come to the realization, you know, I just can't do everything and I can't hold everything and together, and I can't be committed to everything, so I'm going to have this cause in my life, or that cause in my life, or this cause, and that's going to be my identity, that's going to be my definition. You see, it just spins apart after a while. And that's the thing that we come to today when we talk about Jesus clearing the temple, believe it or not. He tells us in this process that, hey, I can fix that problem. And it's, a, it's something I think we, as Christians even, need to come back to regularly. And as I said, at this time in our life and at this time in our world, more than ever do we need to come back to the reality that the unifying factor, the thing that keeps us together and keeps our faith going is not us. It's what Jesus wants to do in the temple of our souls. See what you think. Turn to John chapter Two, and let's start some Bible study here. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to start with verse 12. Jesus was at a wedding in Cana. And then in verse 12, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum, which is where his sort of home base was, down by Galilee. So it's literally down a hill in a valley. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed together there for a few days. Then they moved on, and the, and the Passover, the Jews was near. Uh, the Passover, the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he went down south, but up the hill uh, to Jerusalem because it was on a hill, Mount Zion, uh, as you believe. But but it, what's interesting about this? I just need to say this: the the, the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, they put this at the end. J- John puts it up front. Uh, not a lot of scholars, honestly, will, 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 would say this, but I have to tell you, after studying it, I think maybe this happened twice, that Jesus cleared the temple, okay? Uh, and uh, the reason is, is because there's different things that happen as a result of his clearing the temple, and, and the, the, the Jewish leaders approach him in a different way, and so forth, so I think John is putting this exactly where it happened, but it also happened the last week of his, of his uh, earthly life before he's crucified, Okay? So you know that's not like gonna save you for eternity. It just it might be something that was, you know, popped into your head. So you can you you can believe there was one time, but I, I believe there was two times. So you can believe the other if you want to. Of course, I'm right on that. But anyway, um, go back. I don't I have no idea if I'm right. But anyway, here we go. John thought I was right. So verse 14 with. And within the temple grounds, he found those who were selling, so within the temple court, right in there, those who were selling oxen, sheep, doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords. So this isn't like Roman scourging or something. This doesn't have pieces of metal in it. Don't think of that. This is just a, a, a whip of cords. And drove them all out of the temple area with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned uh, their tables. And to those who were selling doves, those doves were for sacrifice, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it is written in Psalm 69, 9, by the way, the zeal for your house will consume me. So it's sort of a prophecy of this event in Jesus' life. The zeal for your house will consume me. Notice it says it will consume me. It will be all of what I'm concerned for it is you and your house, oh God. That's kind of how that, that statement uh, works out. But So what's, what's Jesus doing here? You know, why does he chase these guys out? I mean, typically what we think of is we think that he's, he's saying, you know, stop it and get that stuff out of here. We think that he's actually saying, you guys are ripping people off, right? Because we think everything is economics. <laughs> we think it all about money, but that's not what it is. In fact, these guys were probably doing good business practice. There's no evidence that they were ripping people off. They were providing a service, because you, when you came to the temple, which, by the way, this temple was a brand new thing. We'll talk about it in a minute. It was a brand new thing in the last few years. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. So people and Jewish people were coming from miles around, from countries around, from days and weeks of travel around. So they didn't want to have to haul their oxen or haul their sheep over there. They didn't want to have to haul their birds over there. And when you got there, you needed a money exchanger just like you do when you go to Israel today to the money exchange at the airport or any other foreign country. You go to the exchange at the airport to exchange money. Why? Because you can only use a certain kind of money. And it was true that we could only use a certain kind of coin at this temple. And so they had to exchange their money. They were doing people a service. The problem was that they were doing it inside the temple grounds, which in those days, you know, it was God's house. Since Jesus' resurrection, things have changed. The building is no longer God's house. We'll talk about that a little later. But in those days, that was God's house. So they had to actually right on the temple grounds. No, they weren't in the Holy of Holies, but they were in the temple grounds. And so what Jesus is chasing them away for is because it was disrespectful to have all this clutter. And instead of people walking in and seeing this kind of place where they would be focused on God, they were going to be focused on all this other stuff. You see? It was the clutter that was driving him nuts. It was the spinning that was driving him nuts. And what Jesus was doing in this time, harsh though it may seem, he wasn't being cruel. There's no evidence that he was whipping the money changers with this whip. He was chasing the animals out. But what he was doing was giving us an invitation to say, you know what? I can clean out your your temple. I can clean things up for you. I can show you how to get all this scattered life and all this scattered faith and all this scattered stuff and bring it together to where it needs to be. And all the stuff that you can't hold inside of you, I can take care of that. It's more of an invitation, I think, is why he's doing this. And and, and that's really a critical thing for us today because we have so much rage and so much chaos going on all around us. It's, it's hard not to get involved in it ourselves, right? Had to shoot, shut off a couple of news feeds for us so I could study this text this week. I'm not saying I'll never go back, by the way. I'm just saying. I mean, it, it, to, to, to keep from being kind of scattered around. We have this thing happening in our, in, our, in our culture right now, in the Western world, that you're hearing more and more and more this word. And I just want to kind of call it out. Because you're even hearing some Christians who are in the process of losing their faith, so they say, uh, who are using this word, okay? And it's called deconstruction. Deconstructionism is rampant. What's deconstruction? Well, to put it simply, because I need it simply, uh, is deconstruction is to sort of tear down the pieces of my life and then pick out the pieces I want and because I can't deal with everything, so I'm just going to pick out the pieces I want and make that the thing, make that the cause, if you will. You see, deconstructionism is all over you. You you hear people sort of doing this again and again and again. Deconstructionism, you even hear, for example, in the last year, you've heard, uh, well, actually, last two years, you've heard several famous worship leaders who say, Hey, I'm deconstructing my faith. They put this on uh, Facebook or on their Twitter feed or whatever. I'm deconstructing my faith. And what that means is, I'm taking it apart into the pieces because I really don't believe all of it anymore. Or you see people saying, I'm deconstructing my sexuality. You know, what, who I really am and what's that, and I'm deconstructing my identity, or I'm deconstructing my morality. But, you know, we live in a world today that didn't always talk like that, it didn't always think like that, but in the last 10 years or so, it's been on steroids, it came from a thing called postmodernism, which is a philosophy, and the hoity-toity elite philosophers were talking about it and so forth, but now it's seeped into the mainstream. It's seeped into the groundwater of all of us, and that's why people are starting to use that word, oh, deconstructing, that's kind of cool. So that's kind of, that's happening all around. And Jesus is bringing this temple back to its one purpose. He wasn't saying they couldn't sell this stuff. He wasn't saying they couldn't do this to deal with their life. He said, but get it out there. Because this place is for this purpose to worship God. This moment, this place is to worship God. That's what he's trying to say. You see, what I'm Trying to communicate here is whether it's because of deconstruction or whatever else that we find ourselves in the chaos, the rage, the stuff that spins around us that demands our attention. Hey, pay attention to this more than anything else. This, this, and this, and this. All the voices around. Whatever it is that's causing that, we've got a bad case of what I would call the splits. And I don't mean like ballerina splits, I mean split minds and hearts and lives. What do we do? We split between the public and the private, So it's sort of like, as long as I'm moral in my public life, it doesn't matter what happened in my private life. That came on the scene during a recent presidency, you might remember, well, recent if you're over 40 years old. You know, that, that kind of, doesn't matter what happens in the private life, it's the public life. Or between, you know, this money is God's money This money is my money, rather than all that I am and all I have is God's. We do the splits. We we, we split between our enemies and our friends. Boy, howdy, we do that more than we ever did before? Can't even converse with our enemies now, you know? The splits are getting worse and worse and worse in our society and in our culture. And so, boy, do we ever need this invitation of someone who can come and help us clean out the clutter? And when I say that, and when, when you see that, if that's what Jesus is doing in this temple, doesn't something inside you go, oh, boy, that'd be cool if somebody would come and clear up some of this stuff because I'm getting hit with it every day. This is important, this is important, this is important, this is important. And kind of clean up the, the clutter that goes on in life and in our hearts and in our minds. And Wouldn't that be something? How do you live in a world like this? Let's put it a different way. How do you be a Christian in a world that's in that kind of spinny chaos. Well, guess what? We have some pretty good examples, some wonderful examples, some wondrous examples of how this worked. In fact, we have it right after uh, the Gospel of John was written, right after Jesus uh, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the church began and they began living in a chaotic society that was probably in many ways more chaotic than ours. In fact, we have a, a letter from uh, the earliest, it, it could be as like 120, 180 A.D. in the early second century, which by the way, that's only you know, 20 or 30 years after John wrote his gospel. Isn't that interesting? But it's this letter that we've been found that, uh, called uh, the so-called uh, letter to Diognetus, uh, Diognetus and, and, and here's what this letter is. This person in the early first century is a Christian leader apparently doesn't sign his name because guess what, you could get killed for being a Christian in those days. And so that's a lot worse than today. And so that's, that's, that's what he's living with, but he's writing to some big leader in the Roman Empire. Some people think he was actually writing to Caesar, but he calls him Diagonetus so that no one would quite know because he, he wants this person to actually hear him and see it. So he, he's sending this letter, okay? And here's what he says about how Christians live. Just one little part of it. It's very interesting. It says, They, that is Christians, live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They share, have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. You see, you've got this thing scattered here, you got this thing over here, this thing over and yet they're, somehow they're, something is happening to them that they can, they can live in a unified way in the midst of all this. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives they go far beyond what the laws require. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. Christians dwell in the world, but they are not of the world. Did you know that's what that, what, that's what that means? Living in the world, being a human being, and yet having it together in, a, in the way that Jesus defines together? That he can actually do that for us? You see, John begins to give us this sense of how this sort of decluttering of our lives and our hearts can happen. And the first thing he wants us to know is Jesus wants you and I to see that our light, all of life is sacred. sacred, And so it belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. All of our lives are sacred it's not you can't divide life into secular and sacred and so forth and so on yeah there's there's crazy stuff going on in the in the world around us and there's there's sinful things going on sometimes we do sinful things yes that's all true but all of life is sacred because god made it if you're a christian if you're a believer that's the truth you believe that all of life is sacred so there doesn't need to be these splits between okay now I'm in worship all right now I'm out in bu- my business world and I can you know, sort of skirt the edges of things, or I can—I got to be concerned about this and this because if nobody ta- if, if I don't take care of it, nobody's going to take care of it. If if I don't take care of myself, nobody's going to take care of it. No, no, no. We're we're beyond that. Hopefully, if you if you've seen that what Jesus is really saying here—that all of your life is sacred. You—that's therefore I, that's why I want it all because you can't split it up. You can't say, here, Jesus, have this part of me and and not that part of me. You can't do this sort of one-and-done deal where I've prayed the prayer, now I'm on to do my own thing. It's all pushing it all across the table and saying, all of it is yours. And I know that I'll fail to keep my commitment. I know that I, in my humanness I can't, but help me keep all of me in your place because that's the only way I can live and survive and really breathe, not just as a, a person, as a human being, but as a person of faith as your follower, Jesus. And that's what he's inviting us to be able to do. He said, yeah, come on, I love that kind of talk. In fact, we realize that the people of Jesus' day, when he did this, were struggling with the same kind of thing. Look what happens beginning in verse 8. He says, the Jews then said to him, okay, i got to stop and say this. The Jews, because we've lived in a world where uh, you know anti-Semitism is a big, important deal and it should be uh, a problem. Uh, this is not an anti-Semitic thing. Jesus and John were Jews, for crying out loud. What this is talking about, when you see this in the book of John and the Gospels, is talking about the religious leaders of the Jewish people. These were political people uh, as well as religious people so, I mean, it was, it was all uh, mixed in there. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I want you to be recognizing that. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said to him, I, It took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days? I bet they did. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. So John is saying an interesting thing. He says, we're not separating ourselves from these religious leaders. We were kind of confused too. They They remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. You know, we really need to talk about this temple thing, because it does relate to us, believe it or not. It doesn't relate to us in the same way it related to this people. But this temple that he was clearing was a fairly recent phenomenon. Herod the Great, you know, baby-killing Herod? He, uh, maybe we should call him Herod Not-So-Great, but they still call him Herod the Great over there. Uh, But he had started this temple in um, like 20 B.C., 20 B.C., 20 years before Christ was born. And it was only completed like in 26 A.D. In fact, it wasn't fully complete, completed. They were still putting molding on the place and stuff like that, like I'm doing in my house, uh, until like 70 A.D. or 60 A.D. when the Romans came in and crushed the place. Uh, but, but it was like, as the Jews said here, it's 46, 46 years. And so when Jesus has this conversation with these leaders, uh, and these Jewish religious people. He's having it around AD 28. So this temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, uh, had, was only, had only been around and kind of open for business, so to speak, open for worship, for two years. So this was a really, really big deal. This was a huge deal. And, 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 and what you need to understand is that this temple was not just the center of worship, it was that. But it was the center of their entire society. It was the center of all of their politics. It was the center of everything they were as a people. It was the center of everything they thought about in their spiritual lives. It was the center of everything that, that um, uh, you know, you thought about for your family and everything else. It was all the center of their existence at that time. Because it was the one beacon of hope against the Roman Empire. And Herod had built it so the Jews would like him because they hated him. And, and he didn't build it because he was religious. But it, you know, to, to that degree, it was a success in his mind because it, was, it became the one beacon of hope for the Jewish people at this time who were under this severe oppression. And here's, here's why it became that. It's because God had promised, just like the Old Testament tabernacle, they, as they read the Old Testament, God had promised to put himself and his presence in a place like that, in this building. Now, as we're going to see, things have changed since Jesus. For us, the temple is different. But that was the centerpiece. That was the center place. And so really, this temple was the place where everything came together. Oh, okay, this makes total sense now. I don't have to worry about all this stuff going on in the Roman Empire, but this focus me, focuses me in my faith in you, God, because you're here. That kind of thing was going on for them there. So that, that, that's the reality of it. And the reality is in the New Testament that it doesn't say that we shouldn't have temples. In fact, it makes it pretty clear from the teachings of Paul and other people that temples are something that we are designed to have in our lives. The way we were made, we were made to be going to the temple, so to speak. What does that mean? Well, it means things like Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay. Yeah, so when you give your body to someone else that's not your spouse or you're promiscuous, you're living a piece of yourself out here and a piece of your temple here and a piece of your temple there and a piece of your temple there. What what are you doing that for? That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. Or uh, Romans 12 offer yourselves as living sacrifices on the altar. Where? In your heart. Oh, so that's the temple. That's the temple. Over and over again, in the New Testament, it says that our hearts are the temple of God now. No longer do we need this brick and mortar stone thing. It's wonderful to have a building to meet in and all the wonderful things that happen and the ministry that is done here, but guess what? This is not the house of God. You are, and you and you and you and me. We are. That's the reality. But in that day, that's, all of that was encapsulated in that building. And and, and the Bible's not saying that that's a bad thing to recognize what the temple is. It's saying just recognize what the temple is. You see, we have temples in our society and culture. We think we're so beyond all these old, ancient, silly, dumb people. But we have all kinds of temples in our culture. Why? Because you can't live without knowing where your temple is, where your focus is. What's the purpose of your life? Let me give you a couple of examples. One temple is right down the street here. It's called the Cineplex where we go and see the people that we would just love to be like. I'm not saying don't go to movies, Don't you know, in case you know somebody's freaking out here. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if you look at celebrity culture on steroids, I mean, the Internet, boy, has that ever made that happen. You know, oh, you know, and people weeping uh, about what happened to so-and-so because, you know... Their diet plan didn't work out, or whatever, or they didn't get elected as the bachelor or the bachelorette, or what. I'm not sure how that works. It shows you how dumb I am about that. But, but the thing is, is that you know, really, you get depressed about that? Well, because that's the temple, man. That's Cineplex, or that little box in your. Since COVID, I guess it's that little box in our house in the family room, wherever you have your TV. How about this one? Here's another temple we have capital buildings uh, please understand me i am not an anarchist that is not i'm not saying that we shouldn't have capital buildings I'm not even saying that politics is all bad. I'm not even saying, you know, because you know, we need a government. We need a government to uh, protect people, to care for people, to make things, are, you know, uh, make sure that uh, laws are kept and order is kept and that sort of thing. Of course we need, we need that. But, but, and, and by the way, if you're a Christian who's thinking about going into politics, please understand, I am not saying you shouldn't. Boy, howdy, do we need Christians in politics. But... The idea that it has become such a central focus, especially the temple in D.C., in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's such, it's it's like everything that comes out of there, we got to know that, we got to see that. And yeah, there's stuff to be concerned about, that's true. That's absolutely true. But do we live with a higher power that causes us to realize that that doesn't need to make me depressed and up and down and so forth and so on? Because that's really not where the purpose of my life resides. It's in the place of worship of the heart. Not worship of the heart, worship of Jesus in the heart, in the place of heart. It's sort of like those early Christians that we just heard about. You know, they're not up and down all the time, even though they're living in this insanity of the Roman Empire. Why? Because they're kind of surfing over the edge of the chaos. It's time for me to bring up a surfing illustration because it's that time of year. But that's what, those, and that's what Jesus is offering here. Or even some of us make our homes our temple. I'm just going to run to my temple and catch my breath. Which you know is good to have. You sort of the home that is your safe place and quiet. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you know there's a more important temple of centering ourselves on. Jesus and that he puts all the pieces together because again any earthly temple can't put it all together without it and the process that starts the whole thing is this thing that John talks about in the in the last sentence of what I read you where he says you know the disciples were listening to this they're kind of like the other guys they're still not getting this but then when Jesus rose from the dead they go oh yeah he said that about building it up in three days that must have been what he meant. he meant he was talking about the temple of his body Our temple. Just like Jesus' resurrected body, our body, our heart is the temple that he is offering to transform. And the way that happens is through believing, because John says, then they believed. Believing, uh, the principle is this believing is seeing when it comes to Jesus rather than the other way around. These guys come to Jesus asking for a sign, remember? They come asking for a sign. Tell us what authority you would do, or you did this for,? If they would have thought about it, the sign that he actually cleared everybody out and they left would have been one sign that he had the authority. But Jesus doesn't give them the sign they want. He gives them another sign, the ultimate sign of this resurrection. But the point is is that it wouldn't have mattered if He had. We're going to see this in a minute, because putting your belief in a sign isn't the same as putting your belief in Jesus. Putting your belief in a certain circumstance working out is not the same as putting your belief in Jesus. That my whole being is in you, Jesus, and, and would you clean up what's in there? And so it's not seeing as believing; it's believing as seeing. You see, and that's where God, John goes at the end of this story because that's where this it, it all worked out. Because the next thing that happens is this, verse twenty-three. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, which is good. Is it great? Well, not quite. Look at this. As they observed the signs which he was was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people. And because he did not need anyone to testify about mankind. He didn't need the, the testimony and the accolades. For he himself knew what was in mankind. He looked to the heart of the temple, the Holy of Holies, which is the heart of every single human being that was following him, internally. And so you can begin to see the invitation and the wonder of this, that Jesus says, you know all that angst and burning and spinning that you're feeling going on? That's because you got a lot of clutter in there, and you know what? I can clean it out. I can clear it out and when I do you're going to have absolute clarity. You're going to have clarity about who I am. That's why worship works that way. It gets us our eyes focused on him while he cleans out all that stuff. And it focuses us in the place that is the only true hope. To testify to who Jesus is and what he's about in our lives and it lifts us up above the cast. Doesn't mean we don't pay attention doesn't mean we still, still don't stoop to 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 help people who are hurting and be there with them doesn't mean any of that we don't not higher than and mightier than other people or anything like that at all it just means that we have fully completely entrusted ourselves to Jesus you see this is the only way to really be able to see what's really going on we we hear this in in uh, the songs we sing like that famous one, Amazing Grace, John Newton. I once was blind, but now I see. It's, it's, it's uh, all through Scripture, but especially in the New Testament, this business of being spiritually blind and missing the reality of what's really real and what really is driving our lives and what really uh, you know, doesn't need to be in our lives and what really does need to be in our lives. Uh, for example, in, in, even in the book of John, Jesus talks a lot about blindness versus seeing. In chapter 9, verse 51, or verse 41, he he tells uh, the Pharisees that, uh, you know, and, and the religious leaders, he says, you know what? If you guys were blind, you would have an excuse, but you studied the scriptures all your life, so you can't be blind, so you don't have any excuse. What's he talking about? He's talking about what sin does when it comes into our lives, and it messes us up, and it makes things the way they were not supposed to be. Something in us tells us this is not the way it should be, Right? That's the nature of sin. And he says, I came to make it the way it's supposed to be. That's why I can clear out the clutter and make it the way it was supposed to be. And the important things stay. The important things are centered. And you'll find out who is really the most important. And keep your eyes on me. And boy, are we off on a journey. But it's not one and done. It's more of an adventure. It's one more of a thing over time. So Jesus says he will entrust himself to you, as it says in that verse, when you truly trust him that's the start cuz you know here's the thing because if you've been thinking of this all along uh, i honor you because you go wait a minute if we can't function in this world with all the stuff that's going around on around us how are we supposed to function in our commitment to jesus and make sure that we stay on it with that kind of laser light intention how, how are we supposed to do that as humans we don't have that capacity and you're right you're right that's why the New Testament tells us it's the Spirit's job to bring the capacity to put the focus where the focus ought to be. But he, he needs to be invited and entrusted with our hearts. And once we entrust him with our hearts, the temple of our souls, the holy of holies of our souls, then he not only kind of cleans things up, he entrusts himself and inhabits our souls, our temple. And it becomes exactly what Paul talks about in in the first chapter of Colossians, Colossians 127. Here's the mystery. Here's the wonder. The wonder is that you have Jesus Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the hope as... Dr. Westcott says that not only have I been saved, not only am I being saved, but one day I'll be completely saved. The hope of glory. Jesus' promise and down payment of that is his presence himself by the power of his spirit in your holy of holies. So when you ask your children, your kids, coming out of children's church, where does Jesus live? And even if it's like one of my kids when they were little, we'll leave them nameless. She'd lift up her dress and go, here. She meant her heart, okay? That's true. That's his holy habitation, if you will. And that's a reality. It's not just gobbledygook spiritual talk. So how do we get there? How do we start living on this way? Many of us already are, but how do we keep living on it? How do do we live on it in in a different level if that's the case for you? had some great conversations between services about people are saying, yeah, I want to go farther because, I mean, it's been such a wondrous journey so far. Well, I just want to leave you with three final thoughts, okay? And the final thoughts would be all centered again around prayer and praying this way. Ask Jesus to do for you um, what's said in Psalm 139, 20, 23, and 24. Let me just read that for you. I don't want to put it on the screen because I want you to go back and read it. But let's, here's what it says. Search, my, search me, O God, all who I am, and know my heart, and put me to the test, and know my anxious thoughts. In other words, you're the only one I trust with my anxious thoughts. Listen to this. Verse 24. And see if there be any hurtful, or shall we say scattered or deconstructed, way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. In other words, Jesus, would you come in and uh, make me whole? And then secondly, ask Jesus to show you how to know him more deeply. Lord Jesus, would, would, would you make my worship of you on a daily basis whole and complete? And finally, Lord Jesus, would you ask him to give you the freedom to trust him completely? Make my my faith whole. Make me whole, then make my worship whole, and make my faith complete. You know what that is? When Jesus does that, that's why it's called the resilient way of Jesus. Because just like John says, it was after the resurrection and we realized, oh yeah, that's what it was, and we believed in him. Every day for a Christian is meant to be a resurrection. It may not feel the same. It doesn't mean we don't go through any troubles or struggles or trials or whatever else. It just means simply that we're focused on that. And he helps us to be more focused over time, but also more seeing of what's really real and what reality and what needs to happen and what doesn't need to happen. And being able to leave that behind. It's... It's being able to say, God, make me whole, make my faith whole, make my worship, therefore, of you whole and complete. That is a resurrection every day. It's the resilient, nothing more resilient than a resurrection. It's the resilient way of Jesus. That's why we talk about it that way. But let's pray about it that way together right now. Our loving Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for teaching us these things, even in such a Initially, strange story, like the clearing of this temple. Would you just help this to become part of our life as people, as individuals, as our life as a church? Would it be something that it would happen to people across this nation, especially the Christians first, that we would be worshiping you from the temple of our hearts and our souls that you would be the one that would be so present there, that you would bring all these chaotic spinning thoughts and concerns and you would place, replace them with yourself and show how you want to address them through our lives and show us that you are in fact our greatest concern in loving you and knowing you is the best thing we can do, not only for our lives, but for our families, for our country, and for you, and that that's how real renewal and making things the way they should be, that you want to do, will actually happen. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being here today and beginning that process in us. Remind us by your spirit to be praying these prayers. Amen.